Well, if you've got your Bibles, if you'll grab please turn to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start this new series. I'm excited. It's going to take quite some time. We'll look at the first seven verses today, um, looking at the greetings and the gospel. Uh, I will say this. Uh, it's, it's an, it's, I've been here 11 years, and I, I haven't preached this book yet. I'm excited. This is one of the most powerful, beautiful, controversial, impactful books you could possibly look at. All the books of the Bible are important. All the books are equally important. Uh, but as I was studying this and preparing um, I, I noticed some stuff. I bought, I got five different books. I was trying to pull for resources to read, and everybody across the board had the same resounding thing, that this is the most profound book that's had a lot of influence, almost more on them than any other book. Now, don't come up and tell me, say, hey, I heard you say Romans is b- better than other books. That's not what I'm saying. But here's a couple of things. Let me just throw this out at you to kind of set the tone for what we're going to do. Today is just real, real not simple. We're going to introduce the book. We have seven verses we're going to cover, talk about Paul, see what this gospel is all about, what's going on in the context to kind of set the pattern here. But here's some, some, some impact that this book has had on people in church history uh, across the board. F.F. F. Bruce, which was a noted scholar, said, there is no telling what might happen when people begin to study the epistle to the Romans. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, believed that every Christian should memorize the book of Romans. There you go. Happy New Year. There, that's your challenge for the new year. Memorize the whole book. Good luck with that. Uh, John Christ- Christensen, I'm going to butcher this, he says this, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundational truth. He actually had it read over him two times a week. Frederick Godet, that's what I said, a Swiss theologian, said every, this is a pretty loaded statement, every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected to the teachings set forth in Romans. And it is probably that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked to, both in cause and effect, to a deeper knowledge of this book. A guy named Aurelius Augustine, later known as St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it. Listen to this. This is just kind of cool. Just, I, I, just, I think this is kind of, kind of interesting. He had been struggling with lust of the flesh. He'd been living, living for the world and, get, and feeling compelled in conviction one day to read the Bible, and he picked up the Bible, and he read Romans 13. We'll get to that later, way down the road. And it talked about sexual sin, not indulging in drunkenness, and, and, and he talked about clothing yourself in the Lord Jesus, and it changed him. It wasn't a sermon. It wasn't a teaching. He grabbed the scriptures, read a verse, and then he said this, no further would I read in that moment, nor have ever needed to read. Instantly, at the end of the sentence, a clear light flooded my heart in all of the darkness of doubt vanquished. St. Augustine simply picked up the scriptures and read in Romans 13, and his life was changed. I confess to you, I am not the greatest preacher in the world, and I'm going to do my very best, but the power is not in me. The power is by him. But to set the tone for this, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. A Protestant minister named Martin Lord Jones spent 13 years preaching through this book. Don't worry, we're not doing that, it's okay. He spent, listen to this, I'm not joking, he spent 29 sermons in the first chapter. Let me say that again. I don't don't think this is on. He spent 29 sermons in the first chapter. Now, the the joke's on me because as I was studying this week, I I got two pages of notes on verse 1. 
Like, I'm literally, I'll be fast. You're thinking seven verses we're going to get out early, but we're not. It's okay. So, so we're going to go slow through this process, and we're going to take our time. It's too good. There's too much meat in there. There's too much good stuff, so we're going to take our time. So I want to ask you to come on this journey. It's going to take us probably through the summer, through, through small groups in our classes and flip-flop summer, but I want to entice you to come on this journey. So I want to ask you to stand. We're going to read seven verses, and then we're going to get into this. <clears throat> Paul, wrote, written by uh, Romans written by Paul to the church in Rome. Listen to what he says. The introduction. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he pronounced beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. And through, through the spirit of holiness was declared with the power to be the Son of God by his resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we've received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also were among those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Take a deep breath, relax for just a minute. Um, I mean it when I say this. There's, I can't change you. I, I say it every week, if your inner desire, whether it be a, a busy week, crazy week, great week, but right now in this moment, if your heart's desire is to be changed and, and let the Spirit of God and the Scriptures and let God Himself change you, just ask Him to do that, to fall fresh on you in a new way. If you're like me, you're just a little tired, maybe you've had a busy week, maybe just ask God to give you a little extra energy, a little, a little extra perk so that you might, that might, might press into this and not miss what He might have for you today. If you don't mind, say a prayer for me that I might speak clearly and that all this would make sense according to his word. God, you know our hearts. You know what our week's been like. You know what today's been like. You know uh, where our mind's at. I pray for this day. I thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for the privilege to stand up here and to preach. Uh, Father, for all of our hearts, for those who desire to be changed and shaped and molded, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, let this be that day. Do something great today. We ask it all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, um, back in the fall, I, uh, I had a medical condition that happened. Most of you probably didn't even know what happened, and I'll explain. It's kind of weird. I started feeling kind of weak, and uh, it got worse, and I remember it peaked right after we did a fifth quarter for the youth at the Haven, and we were over there, and I got home that night. I was tired, doing well tired, uh, but my, I just kind of felt achy, and then I get to the house, and it's kind of late. People are going to bed, and I get, I literally, I couldn't pull, I couldn't pull the covers up. It, my arms wouldn't work, and I was kind of freaking out a little bit, and I was freaking out enough to where the next Saturday, I decided to skip Ella's volleyball game, and I decided to go to the doctor, and I decided, I got to go figure this thing out. That morning, I got up, and I decided, you know what? I still want a cup of coffee. So I went to the, that morning, I went in there, and I got a cup of coffee, and I literally grabbed the pot, and I couldn't pull it out. I was getting a little, cra- little, little kind of freaky, a little the morning of, and I'm like, I'm already, I've already decided to go. 
like Friday night, I'm like, I gotta go. Saturday morning, I get up, and then I decided, I literally two-handed the coffee pot, and I'm shaking, and I'm pouring it in there, and then I grab my coffee, and I grab the cup, and I'm literally, and I'm holding it, and I'm shaking like this. I'm literally holding my cup of coffee. Everything in my being trying to hold a cup of coffee. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. And so I, I did what most people can't, you know, do, like when and you get in a car and you drive. I'm just kidding. That's what I did. I drove, I drove, I drove to the doctor and I was okay. I was okay. And I, I drove there and, uh, and I, I, after, after several uh, of doctor's appointments and blood tests, they find out, they don't really know what happened, but I had a form of mitosis, which my muscles were kind of just kind of shutting down. And it was like they were cramping and maybe like tearing them up a little bit. And it just, it was kind of crazy. But we don't know exactly why. Uh, but after, um, <laughs> actually the doctor told me when he, Funny part of the story was this: um, after we realized that you know there's there's form of mitosis where your muscles like due to an injury or whatever, and the doctor says, you know what, this is something that's common in premier athletes when they're training too hard. And I was like, well, <laughs> let's uh, let, we can rule that one out, you know. Hey, let's just. Uh, but I had fun with that for like two weeks. I was like, guys, hey, I'm, it's kind of a premier training thing. It's just kind of something I'm, you you would understand. It's just something I'm wrestling with, you know. Um, I, I I that got old pretty quick, but I used it for like two weeks. But um. So after some blood tests, and then after the joke, uh, whatever, then it got a little humbling, but he said, oh, oh, by the way, it's also something that can happen if somebody's had a stroke. And I was like, I'm sorry, what did you say? He said, yeah, sometimes if somebody has a stroke, whatever, sometimes the body can, enzymes, I don't get all the medical stuff, but it can literally cause your muscles to kind of shut down because you've had damage in your body. If your heart's had things, we ruled that out, praise God, it wasn't that. But all that to say, I, we, we think I hurt something, I overdid it, doing something, I don't know, we don't really know why. But in that moment, I was humbled, and I thought about this this week as we were going through this, these first seven verses. I thought about how I humbly felt when I had a new appreciation for when I began to get my strength back. When I'm driving back from Lubbock and I shouldn't be checking my phone, but I'm like, the blood test results coming in, I'm like, okay, it wasn't a stroke, the heart's good, everything's good, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. But I remember whenever I got to actually save me for the next time, and I was like, I wasn't struggling to hold her. I got to hold my own cup of coffee. I got to do the things that I'd done for so long without even thinking about it. I had a new appreciation for something that I'd just done over and over and over again, and I know it's, it's, maybe it's just for me, but I thought about that this week when I was preparing for this study in Romans. Like, hey, Paul, well, you know who Paul is? Romans, okay, yeah, this book, I mean, it's something that, there's all these familiar verses, Romans 3, 23, Romans 6, Romans, all things that come to nod, and I just wanted to throw this challenge for you, because I need to hear this, that maybe all of us, that we could have a new approach, it's just a humble approach to say, you know what, we've read possibly this book, we know who Paul is, we're going to talk about him a little bit, but have a humbled approach for something that we might have a little familiarity with, if that makes sense. With eyes that would be fresh and humble to think, maybe, I, maybe I've read that verse, but maybe I could step, step in here. Maybe I know what, what, what we've done in this text before, but maybe to have a, a fresh eyes, an open heart to see and to slow down and have a new appreciation for it. That was on my heart. Maybe it's just for me. But as we see this, I just want us to step into this as we look at the first seven verses. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at it. We're going to spend some time on verse 1. Right off the bat, we know that Paul is the author. Paul writes this letter. He's not been to Rome. He's not in Rome. He writes the letter to the church in Rome. We scholars believe he was in Corinth at the time on his third missionary journey. And we'll talk later about the reputation that he heard. Like, good stuff's going on there. Now, he writes the letter to Rome for several reasons. And that's going to kind of play out in this introduction and later on. This, Rome is a place of influence and power. And what greater place to have the gospel take root and to take over the whole nation, the whole world. But there's also and Gentiles, those from different backgrounds and faiths that are coming to Christ, 
and he's needing them to be unified and also understand that we've got to set forth and to move on to this journey of being obedient. We see right off the bat, Paul introduces himself. This is not like dear David or dear so-and-so. This is how historically they would write. They would say right off the bat, Paul, it's me, Paul. And he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. A lot here, but let's talk about real quick. So just remember, fresh eyes, open heart, humbly receive what God's talking here about this stuff that we may think we already know. Who, who is Paul? We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this book, but Paul, you know his story. Formerly Saul, he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, born in the city of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, profoundly smart, educated by the famous anti-Christian rabbi named Gamaliel, which fueled his hatred for Christians later. He was a tent maker by trade, yet he had become one of the Sanhedrins, call it prosecuting attorneys, if you will, to go out and persecute Christians. Many called him the chief antagonist for followers of Jesus in the time. And you know the story, just a couple of glimpses. I'm just fresh eyes, remember? In Acts chapter 7, when the, when the Sanhedrin had enough of a guy named Stephen, remember that? So much so that they drug him, probably kicking and screaming, and stoned him to death. And they gave their coats to Saul. In Acts chapter 8, Saul went through the streets and literally drug people out of their homes and put them in jail for following Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's who this guy is. Acts chapter 9, you see, we see this, this, the Damascus Road when Paul has an encounter with Jesus and it literally knocks his socks or sandals off, knocks him off. He goes by his Hebrew name, once, uh, uh, sorry, the Greek form of his Hebrew name, once he, he, he truly encounters a risen Jesus, which is Paul, and he, he's changed, he's different, he's converted. He says he's become a, a servant, a slave, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. And right after in Acts chapter 9, if, if, if you can go back and read that later if you want to, but when Paul says, who are you, what, who is this? And Jesus tells him, it's me. Now, and then he says, now go, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You see, it matters when Paul, right off the bat, he describes himself, this is for me, and he says, I'm a servant. Now, right there, Paul's going to describe himself in three ways. If you want to learn in verse one, you can. He, he's always his name, but he says servant. Depending on your translation, it might say bond servant or servant, but it kind of gets missed. It's closer to slave. In the Greek, it's doulos, which means slave. Now, this is amazing because in the time, a doulos was a person who had been purchased and once purchased had become his master's possession. That's all of us. Paul says, I have been purchased. I am different. It's not about me anymore. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And he writes this over and over. And a couple of things I put here to not miss. He, he, he literally, Paul shakes this all up and he writes in other places that this powerful doctrine in 2 Corinthians 12 says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians 6, not to be people pleasers, but slaves to Jesus. Colossians 3, we talked about this literally a week ago. He says, you're dead. Your life is dead. Your life is now hidden in Jesus. It's not about you anymore. So literally, we could go on and on, but church, I just want you to see this, this, this simply by introducing Paul, his testimony, his life, his writing. It blows up. Hear this. This is powerful. It blows up any notion for you and for me to ever think, to ever think that following Jesus is anything less than complete 
utter and total submission to him. I can't emphasize that enough. There is something in our culture in America where somewhere we bought a lie and maybe we begin to believe it that we can kind of just tag along Jesus and make a decision to pray a prayer and do these things and just try to squeeze Jesus in other aspects of our life. That is, that's a lie. Scripture teaches totally different. And Paul's saying over and over in his testimony, in his life, he says, no, it's not, we're dead. We're slaves to Jesus. What about him? Total submission. And if you know Christ, if anybody in this room, if you've given your life to Jesus, that ought to, I hope, it does for me just to kind of shake us up a little bit, right? To not, to not yawn at this. And think, yes, this, this is for Paul and the church. Follow Christ. It is complete and total submission to Jesus. You too are considered to be a bondservant or a slave to Christ. Dare we not ever think that we can do the work version of ourselves, the family version of ourselves, uh, hobbies and habits and pleasures, all these things, and kind of please everything else and think, well, I'm going to claim Jesus as king too. It doesn't work that way. So right off the bat, we see Paul says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, the doulos, I'm a person that has been purchased and I have full rights to a master, King Jesus. My life's about him. The second thing he calls himself is the capital A apostle. One who is sent. And he's going to talk about, hey, this is one who's commissioned, one who, who, who has direct, uh, I mean, direction for the risen Jesus. And back in Acts chapter 9, we see this powerful conversion. Excuse me, The Lord actually said to a man named Ananias, and he said, this guy, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. Paul didn't go down to the local market and say, hey, I'm here to fill out an application. I'm kind of bored and I need a job. I heard there's some apostleship openings. Can I fill, fill out an application? No. You don't choose that. Now, the capital A apostle office is closed, but we're all apostles. We're all to be sent. We're all to be sent out as messengers to proclaim the hope of Jesus as a slave, but as a lowercase apostle. He was commissioned. He was taught in a new direction about this risen Jesus. That goes back to Acts 9 when he had a physical, to, that was a requirement. You had to, to, to see the risen Jesus. Check, he did. He was taught by Christ. He was. And the Lord said, he is my chosen instrument. Paul's the guy. He's the one. And the third thing, if you're in verse 1, he, he describes himself as set apart. Set apart for the gospel. It's so cool. Uh, I, I, I kind of geek out on some of the stuff that's really Maybe it's not as big a deal, but I, I just like it. When Paul was a Pharisee, the word Pharisee actually means one who is separated. <laughs> That's actually what it meant. And, and the Pharisees were the holy of, holier-than-thou people. They would cloak themselves in robes. There's documentation to talk about them walking through the streets in robes and, and what do you call it, the hoods? or well, There's another name for that, cloaks and things like that. Literally, not to be touched by anybody. Don't even touch me. I don't get the Gentile cooties from anybody in this town. Don't even touch me. We're Jewish. We're the righteous people. Don't even touch me. But now what does he say? He says, I'm set apart, but it's not about being self-righteous, and it ain't about me. I'm a slave. I'm set apart. It's about Jesus. And so what he's saying now is like, I'm set apart for what? The gospel. Kiddos that were on the children's, this is what we're talking about. We're set apart for the gospel. The Greek word, euangelion, which means good news. It's a powerful wordplay where he's saying, you know what? I'm set apart, but it's not about me anymore. I'm dead. I'm a slave. I'm an apostle, and I am set apart in holiness for the king. I was thinking about this. Good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news. But good news often doesn't sell, right? 
I think I talked about this about a month ago, whatever, talking about how weird articles that make you want to click it and make you like it, or, or even watch the local news. If they're, hey, they're giving puppies away at the market, and it's, you're not, I don't care about that, but if they say, hey, there's shootings and drug dealers and something bad happened, and this, you're like, what happened? I got to find out. But in our culture, good news doesn't always precede. Don't miss the fact that Paul starts off. Now, there's lots of bad news. We're going to get there. Hey, wages of sin is death. The wrath of God towards sin. At the end of chapter 1, there's a lot of bad news, but to appreciate the good, you need to have an understanding of the bad. The bad news is, is that we are all sinners, that we deserve death and hell for, for, for eternity, but God came. Paul is saying that I am a servant, I am an apostle, I am set apart for the good news. We keep going, and we look at this, and we see, as we get into the verse 2, as we see the gravity of this good news, and, and I remember that muscle story. Just keep remembering that muscle story. It's humbling. Don't let this, take this for granted. Let's appreciate this. The good news of salvation, the redemption of Christ. It's not just new. It's not random. It's not an out-of-the-blue thing. Verse 2 tells us that the gospel, that good news, the important word here, it's promised. If you've got your Bibles, underlined, promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Spirit. Now, 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 promised beforehand. I love this text. We spent a lot of time in Advent talking about that. I could sit up here and we could walk through Isaiah 53, Zechariah 9, Amos, uh, Amos 9, Jeremiah 30, about all of the pronounces. We could go back to the birth of Jesus and the angels. I bring you what? Good news of great joy. The Savior's been born. And he's for all people. But I was kind of, again, I was talking about why, but I was kind of geeking out on some of this stuff. But you know what? We can go even further back because the first, this is good for trivia if you need to hear this, uh, the good Excuse me, the, the first pronouncement of good news, do you know where that's at? I want to show you. Genesis chapter 3. If you would flip back, I want you to see this. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'll give you just a second. It's too good. I want you to see it. We're going to see in, in, in the book of Genesis the fall of man. When sin enters the world and fractures everything that God has made. And God's going to speak to the serpent that we know is, 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 is Satan. Look at, in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all of the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now let me explain this. This is what theologians call the proto-euangelion, which is basically a fancy word for the first pronouncement of the good news. Now don't miss this. Fancy words, big things, but don't miss this. Right when sin entered the world, God made it, it's good. Sin enters the world, breaks everything. At that moment, there is a pronouncement that help and hope is coming. Please see this. He says, I will. That's the promise in verse 15. I will. Divine action, divine initiative, divine authority. God is still in charge. God's not like, oh my gosh, there's sin. Or oh, oh me, or whatever you want to say. He's like, he's not freaked out by this. He's not shocked. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Sin's in the world. What's plan B? So sin breaks it, and he says, I will. He's basically saying to Satan, let me paraphrase, that, hey, you thought you were going to turn Adam and Eve and the human race against me? And God says, no, I'm going to turn them against you. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be animosity. 
As if he's to say, you think you can turn all of them, but it's not going to work. God did not Satan at that very moment, and I hope you see this. That is the first pronouncement of the good news where God says, I will, I will. Long before the prophets wrote, long before the prophets prophesied, long before any of that, in Genesis, in the creation narrative, he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to provide. Hope's coming. But notice this in verse 15. Look what he says. From the offspring, <laughs> I'm going to make a joke about in our world, pronouns matter. Verse 15, look, I will put enmity between you and the woman and from your offspring and her. He, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Help me out. Who's the he? Jesus. Genesis 3, Jesus. The good news, God says, sin enters, but hope's coming. Please, fresh eyes, look at this and don't miss this. How did Jesus defeat Satan? At the cross. By providing the atonement that paid the full penalty for all sins. He satisfied the justice of God. We're going to talk about that later. Paying the full debt of God. He conquered the, the sin and death. Opening up heaven in this marvelous work of the cross and the resurrection. I want you to see this because what Paul is saying in verse 2, it's promised beforehand. Yes, all the prophets would speak. Messiah is coming, help's coming to fix this sin thing. But even back in Genesis chapter 3, right when sin enters, God says, I will, I will. And I don't know about you, but I, I like, I, it just encourages me. Jesus is going to come. Help is going to come to redeem and rescue you from, from your sins. So back to Romans 1, look at verse 3. The gospel of Jesus is promised through the prophets, through the scriptures, and Paul signifies this in verses 3 through 4. Regarding his son, Jesus, who has who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. There it is. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The letter is written to the Christians in Rome that come from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. There's a lot here, and we see this dual nature of God being, Jesus being fully God and fully man. I could go back and we could walk through Isaiah chapter 9 about Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. And, but we see these promises of all these Christmas verses that he's going to come from the line of David. That mattered to the Jews. That mattered to those who were looking for the Messiah to come, that they were promised that he's going to come, but he's going to come through the line of David. And that matters. If you get bored with today, turn to Matthew chapter 1, where the genealogy of Jesus starts right at the very first, Matthew 1.1. It's going to talk about coming from the line of David, of the line of David. All of this traces Jesus back. Paul's not saying, we're going to keep going, Paul's not saying, I declare Jesus is the Son of God. He's saying God has declared and proved by his resurrection from the dead that he, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. Promised by the prophets, the Son of God, proved by the resurrection, and it changes not only him, let me repeat this, it changes not only him, but those who call themselves by his name. So to the believers in Rome, to the believers in Olton, to the believers in this church. We are called by his name. Let's round this out in verses 5 through 7. Through him, through Jesus Christ, the gospel of which we believe and hold fast to, we have received grace. Everybody loves grace. 
and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Let's go finish 6 and 7. And you are also among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is important, and it's all important, but I want you to see this. Verse 5 is going to speak of both privilege and responsibility. Through Jesus Christ, we receive grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor. We, don't, we deserve death for our sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God steps in the beauty of the gospel that we deserve to, be, to, to die, spend an eternity separated, but the grace of Jesus steps in. He sheds his blood, the final lamb. He dies my death. He conquers sin. He conquers death when he was vindicated and rose from the grave. And all those who would call by his name would live forever. Paul says, through Jesus Christ, through this good news, we've received grace. The forgiveness of sins. Praise God and amen. But also, we're called to apostleship to share this. You see, I think sometimes, if I could say this, I think sometimes in the, in the American church, sometimes I think we, we love grace. We are all about, yes, I want, to, I want Jesus died for me, yes. But we forget the responsibility. And this is what Paul's hammering in verse, chapter, I mean, uh, verse 5. He's saying, We've, you've received grace. We're not stopping there. And apostleship, lowercase a, all of us, all of us are called to apostleship, to be sent, to share, to call people to faith, to call people to obedience. You see what Paul's looking for here? He's not asking for conversion. That's not what he's looking for. That's a big part of it. But he's challenging the church in Rome to say it's not just about conversion, it's about calling the church to faith into, the best way I could paraphrase it, to live that, to live obedience, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be the body of Christ, to be a slave, to be a bondservant, to attach yourself to him and not try to integrate him in life. So he's challenging them in verse 5. He's challenging you and I because sometimes think it's, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to be Christian. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to go to heaven. I want to do these things. But when it comes to sharing and spreading the gospel, that's what the paid guys get done. That's what we pay David for. That's why we're looking for a youth pastor, right? Because that's, that's his job to do that. You might not ever think that or say that, but I, I, I've had that happen in conversations all the time. Want to invite people to church, want to share Jesus. And sometimes I'm thinking, you, you can do that. You, 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 you can do that. I want to ask you quickly, this is going quickly, we're almost done. How does verse 5 land on you? I think if a lot of us are honest, I'm not trying to read your mail, but I'm thinking for me, I think sometimes I'm very guilty of just want to, want to relish the grace of Jesus. Thank you. I'm so grateful for what you've done. But we forget, and maybe that's what's taking place here with, with Paul in Rome. He's like, hey, you called to an apostleship. You got to go. Who, who has come to church, to faith, to belief in Christ Jesus because of you. Think, think about this. Let this kind of settle in on you. If you and I, we could go our whole life and nobody in our influence, in our workplace, in our school has come to faith in Christ or closer to Jesus by our testimony, by our life, by being a bondservant slave to Jesus, then what are we doing? Right? And that's where I think the rubber meets the road or whatever the metaphor is. I think that's where, if we're just really honest, that's, we love grace. 
But Paul says it is grace, but there is responsibility and authority that's at the same time. You can't just relish the grace and think, I've got mine, I'm good. That's what they pay these guys to do. So Paul speaks of privilege, but also of responsibility. We understand, the scripture tells us, he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, but it is by grace that you've been saved. It is through faith. It is a gift, not of yourself, lest no one boast. He's calling the Gentiles, he's calling the Jewish believers, he's calling all of them that come from faith. And Paul's goal is to bring about obedience and faith, not just conversion, not just salvation. All the books and all the scholars agree that this is not just talking about let's get them, let's get them dunked, let's get them saved. He's talking about, no, the story after that, as ambassadors of Jesus being sent out and to share the good news of Jesus, influence Rome, influence the world. That's why Paul was all over this place, because he hadn't even been there. But he's later going to say, I've heard your testimony. I've heard your story. The word is out. The church in Rome is, is doing well. Your reputation precedes you. Oh, I wish that would be us. And we heard about that. We heard about your church. We heard about the believers in Ulta. We've heard about those that go to that church, those the churches in the community. We heard about that because... Their lives reflect it. Their lives reflect being a bondservant, a slave. Their lives don't reflect just relishing grace of being forgiven and going back to life. Their lives reflect something different because their life is not their own. And not perfect, but even their failures are pointing back to this Jesus as their king and their Lord. You see, as I wrap up, I, I, I think of this and Paul described these believers in four ways in verses 6 through 7. He says, you're called to belong to Christ. You are loved by God. You're called to holiness. You're set apart. And yes, we enjoy the grace, but also being at peace with God. Reconciled sinners, but also set apart for him. I want to challenge you with something. I, today's a little different. It's an introduction, but there's a lot here. The calling on our life. Hear this, and we're almost done. The calling on your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, that this is not for you. But the call on your life, if you follow Jesus, this is not just to say, I've got grace, and I'm saved, and I'm going to go live my life. It's not. It's not. Paul tried to destroy that in almost all these churches. It's not about you. All the epistles, you can almost tie every one of them back. You can read First and Second Peter. Peter said the same thing. I'm a slave to Jesus. It's not about me. But oh, if we would truly rest in the grace and realize the responsibility of saying, I too am set apart for the gospel. Kids, this good news, it's worth sharing, right? It's worth sharing. Paul believed, may we, he was forever changed, so should we. He was called to serve and devote everything to the gospel. And he's reminding the church that we, Rome, all the other churches, believers, the body, capital C church, that have tasted the grace of Jesus, you are loved, you are called, you are set apart in being so overwhelmed by the gospel that he has reconciled you to himself by his death and burial and his resurrection changes everything. I heard it said this way, that there's a lot of religions in the world, but there's only one gospel. There's only one really good news. Pick any other religion in the world. It's all about, you got to get to whoever that God is. Our God has come to us. Our God loves you. And from the fall, 
fall of man. He promised, I will. I will, I will, I will. He did it. He always keeps his promise. Through the line of David, Jesus has come. He did it. We get to read about it. We get to store, study it and get to celebrate it. But may we, may we live it. May this be our testimony moving forward. Let's pray together. Just for a second, before we sing our last song, just, just rest and just be still for a minute. I don't, know, I don't know what he's speaking to you or how this might land on you, but the gospel of Jesus is up front and center. Maybe he's calling a view of things in your life. Maybe you've kind of segmented your life and compartmentalized it. And maybe the reality and the truth of being a slave, being a boss, it's all about him. I'm, I'm gone. Maybe there's areas of your life that you just need to confess and say, it's, it's all yours. Maybe there's somebody here today that you know a lot about Jesus, but you've never given your life. You don't know. Your eternity is not secure. Your eternity is separated from him. And you know the stories, but you've not really truly given your life to him and said, I'm all in. For the rest of my life, my life is now yours. I'm, this is your story. Maybe today would be the day of salvation. Maybe today after church there's conversations with kids or friends and adults and, and people that might have a conversation and say, I want to know this good news. I know the story, but I want to know the Savior. Because Paul proves and shows us that it changes everything. Has it changed you? You pray, and we're going to stand and sing. Father, we're grateful for today. I thank you for how seven simple verses in a beautiful book can, there can be a lot there. I thank you that the gospel is up front and center. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for keeping your promises. I thank you from the fall of man that you promised to take care of this sin problem. And there's many of us in this room that we have, we've, we've staked our lives on that. Help us to, to move forward in that and step into that. To understand the grace but also the responsibility. And God, maybe if there's somebody who doesn't know you, that you wouldn't stop stirring their heart, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would be so curious, so maybe just wondering and asking questions that maybe true salvation may come. And Father, as we sing this song and leave this place, I pray that we, as this church and if anybody here goes to another church, that we can be the church and we can represent you and we can be moved in apostleship and set apart in holiness and distinctness and pointing people to you, telling our story. We can't help it. We talk a lot about news in the world of things that have happened in our town and places. 
Help us to be supernaturally excited about this good news of Jesus. May it never grow old. We thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this. I'll be uh, here to pray with you if I can.